0: You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Our sermon today comes from 1 Peter 3, 13-22. in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god with the angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him this is
1: thank you ashley thank you praise team cat everyone we appreciate your faithful service and leading us in worship in those various aspects of worship my name is tim i serve here as lead pastor it's a joy to be with you and we have the whole family here today, so that feels like a, a big praise. Um, my my daughter is reminding me of her presence with her scribbles in my book here this morning. That's starting to become a reoccurring theme, I think. But um, anyway, it's a delight to be able to open up God's Word. And before we do so, a couple things. First of all is um, a little bit more on how we might be able to help Afghan families in need through world relief. Had the privilege of sitting in on a meeting this past week with faith leaders and hearing more about the ways in which, think of the acronym GAPS. Where are there gaps that we, the church, might be able to step in? So in giving, advocacy, prayer, and service. That's, that's kind of an overview, but the link about ways that you can serve is in the Church Center app, which also has the sermon notes if you want to follow along this morning. Um, and one of the things I would encourage, too, is for our ethos communities to consider and pray about the ways that are that we might um, that our group might come alongside, whether it be putting together a, a welcome kit for a family that that uh, is um, coming over, world relief I think has resettled twelve families so far from Afghanistan and anticipates more in the coming weeks. Um, but there are some big needs right now, as particularly in the Chicago office for some furniture items like kitchen tables and chairs, coffee tables, and nightstands in particular, so wanted to make you aware of those. Um, and also, just as a reminder, too, for our students that uh, we love you, we're praying for you kids, students, as you're back in school. And uh, of, I think that this passage this morning speaks very much to the readiness that we are to have with the gospel when those, when those questions arise, when people ask us about our faith in Jesus Christ and the hope that we have. Um, I would be remiss if I w- didn't mention that uh, this Sunday actually is Danny's last Sunday, on staff for our church, as we as you know, and as we talked about like at the annual meeting and so forth, but we are planning on honoring him more on September nineteenth. So you're not gonna to want to miss that. As well as uh, can we just thank him right now though for his faithful service? Absolutely <laughs> I feel like I'm squeezing every ounce out of him in the next couple of days here. So pray for Danny. Uh, no, but he has such a heart to help um, those, that, those that will come after him. And we also have some, some needs in terms of ways that you can be serving within the body as well. So I think um, some of those you, you'll hear about later. But um, yeah, I think, is that about cover? Most things, one last thing. I shouldn't say one last thing at the beginning of my message, but... Um, <laughs> So, a a miracle 10 years in the making for our family is that Danielle, my wife, is pregnant. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I got to fight it back here, but... Uh, For those that know our journey, it has been one, the reason I mentioned nine, ten years is that we've had quite a a lengthy journey of uh, struggle with infertility and wondering what God was up to in the midst of that, got to adopt Izzy and Sam, as you know, uh, and probably heard this morning running around. Um, But uh, this comes as quite a surprise to us and one that we are very, very thankful for. Well, we'd appreciate your continued prayers, and especially for what comes next and <laughs> ways that the body can um, you know, step up while I'm on paternity leave, if you can believe that kind of stuff. But uh, one of the questions that we have grown fond of asking people, whether they be far from God or asking for prayer, is if God could do a miracle in your life, if God could do a miracle in your life, what would it be? And my answer to that question has been for a biological child and that is what we have seen god do what an amazing thing but at the same time we recognize that one in eight couples these days struggle with some form of infertility and it's a hard road we've had the privilege of walking alongside other other couples that are that are doing just that so if that's the boat that you're in we would love to come alongside you too Um, i have no idea why now According to my father-in-law, it just took some good Lake Michigan water. But uh <clears throat> tried to do the voice. I don't know if that translates or not. He's the same one that said, oh yeah. He's the same one when we let him know. He looked at he did the math, you know, Izzy Sam and number. He goes, Oh no. Mo, Larry, and Curly. <laughs> yes, we are about to be outnumbered. But anyway, praise God. We have been bursting at the seams wanting to share that. Um, share that news with you, our church family. And so we appreciate your prayer, your support, and your encouragement along the way. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we praise you that you are indeed a, a miracle-working God. We thank you for all that you have done, are doing, and will continue to do. And we pray that your hand would be upon our students as they are back in school and getting back into the rhythm of things. Lord, we pray for your protection upon our K-12 through students, Lord, that you would walk with them this year. And Lord, help them, cause them to be ready and up front with the hope that you have given them through Jesus Christ. Father, we lift up families and the people of Afghanistan as they uh, are getting out and seeking to make a new life here or elsewhere. Lord, we pray your protection upon them. We pray for the remaining time of drawing down of forces there. And Lord, we pray that your church would rise up and come alongside these families in need. Lord, would you show us the ways in which we can best give and advocate and pray and serve, Lord, these, these families, these people made in your image, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would illumine your word this morning through your spirit. Lord, for those that may don't know you or may be wrestling with Christianity, Lord, would the truth of the gospel leap off these pages this morning and, and out of my mouth, Lord? And would you strengthen and bolster the, those of us who have had uh, been in the faith for a, a longer time, Lord? Would you cause our faith to flourish, to, to deepen, Lord, would we press even further into your gospel? We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. My grandfather, Grandpa Alan, who actually, one of my uh, sons, one of, one of his, not one of my sons, maybe, <laughs> my son's uh, first of his two middle names, Arthur, is after Grandpa Alan, when I was in sixth grade, he actually got to come to the school that I was in with this backpack that was filled to the brim with items for life's journey. You see, he was... A, a scout executive with the Boy Scouts of America. And he had this awesome, it was like, you know, the, the world was reversed. It was like a proud grandson moment, I guess, as he got to share with the class and talk about what he does, but also pull out one by one these items in his, in his backpack for preparation for things that we need along the journey of life. And as you know, what is the scout motto? Be prepared, right? Be prepared. And I remember him sharing about a compass in particular and how it shows us, it guides us to north, true north. And that is very much what God's word does for us this morning. But as we approach this passage, it talks about what it means to live in readiness, the readiness of the gospel. And not only readiness, but also living in the victory that Christ has secured on the cross. It would behoove you to turn to 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22. And Peter wrote this book, of course, to Christians scattered throughout the uh, Roman provinces, believers that were sojourners and exiles, and writes to them about the hope, the living hope that they have as they struggle to live and to navigate what, living between two worlds. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, as we saw last week, calls Christians to be a blessing both in the community of faith as well as to the broader community, and that involves displaying certain qualities, certain qualities such as harmony, sympathy, love, compassion, and humility that in displaying these things, they should authenticate the gospel message that we proclaim. Well, starting in verse 13, Peter zeroes in on how Christians should respond What this readiness should look like, especially when suffering for doing what is right. Suffering for standing up for what is right. And in our time together, we're going to look at four responses to suffering for what is right. In verses 13 to 17, followed by then the ultimate example of suffering for doing what is right in Jesus Christ himself. In verses 18 through 22. So, beginning in verse 13, the first response when suffering for standing up for what is right. Remember that you are blessed and will not be harmed ultimately. Verse 13, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now wait a minute. Many Christians have suffered harm uh, or perhaps have been uh, abused in some way for standing up for what is right. What Peter here is doing, I think, is using this word harm in the ultimate sense that Christians who stand for what is right, though they may suffer physically or abuse, will not be harmed ultimately, as Jesus reminds us in the Gospel of Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, the way Peter presents this suffering makes it clear that he anticipates suffering at some point. And if you know, that the emperor at this time was Nero, and yet this, it's likely that the main part of that persecution had not yet broken out. And yet he wanted them to be prepared for what they would face. Throughout the letter, Peter addresses suffering in general, but here there is a very specific category, and that is suffering for doing what is right. If you think about the conditions in the first century, this there was still some confusion surrounding this new or fledgling band of Christ followers and many Christians faced threats and hostility when they stood up for their newfound faith, sometimes because of the confusion about what it was exactly that they stood for. Today, some of that hostility might come in forms of ridicule, perhaps in school, in the workplace, being viewed as backward or one of those. A passage like this, though, I can't help but think about. Some of my dear brothers that are serving as pastors in northern Iraq and what they have endured for the sake of the gospel, not only in abuse and threats in ostracism from their families in some cases, knife attacks. I've seen the scars that one dear brother has on his hand from one such attack as well as a bombing attempt. Peter emphasizes, those, Peter emphasizes that those who suffer for doing what is right in the face of hostility are deeply and fundamentally blessed. To be blessed here in 1 Peter does not mean to feel happy, though. Instead, it means to be highly privileged. It is the highest privilege to be sons and daughters of the king. And as Jesus says once more in Matthew five ten, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second response, revere Christ as Lord and fear no other. The rest of verse 14 says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Here Peter draws from Isaiah 8, 12 through 13 as a paradigm for his readers in the midst of suffering and persecution that they not be afraid of those that would seek to harm them, that they would not get caught up in empty threats, rather that in their hearts they would revere Christ as Lord. Instead of fearing those who should seek to harm us, only God should be feared. And Peter is concerned about the heart of the matter, being zealous for what is good, flows from a heart that has been profoundly shaped by the gospel. Fear God and fear no other fear God by showing him the reverence and awe that he is due. When we were back in, in Colorado in July, we got to be in Garden of the Gods once more, and it reminded me of a time when we took some friends to Garden of the Gods there in Colorado with their three-year-old daughter who said in response to the name of the park, there is only one God. I loved that. Apparently, like, she took it personally that the name of this Park implied that there could be more than one God. God has no rivals, it's true. Fear God and fear no other. This is the kind of spiritual backbone that Peter is asking his readers to have. Well, as we navigate this world and face opposition, part of the way that we we revere Christ as Lord is by rightly representing him from his word. And that's where Peter goes next. The third response, be ready, to share the truth in love. Be ready to share the truth in love. Look at the rest of verse 15 and 16. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Remember that scout model once again? be prepared. Peter encourages followers of Christ to always be prepared to respond when asked about the hope of the gospel. And as we live out the gospel, there are going to be times when we're called into question, when we're asked why we're different or challenged as to what we believe. One of our ethos statements here at EBF, our ethos is both who we are and who we hope to become, is that of humble orthodoxy. I hope you hear that from time to time within this body, humble orthodoxy. Verse 15 here really is a verse that holds these two words of this phrase together in tension, humble and orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is seen in the phrase, the hope that you have, what Paul calls the hope of the gospel. And while the word orthodox might conjure up images of of dusty books, thick books that are, you know, good for bicep curls, those kinds of things, that word, should not th- that word should not cause us to tremble. It simply means right belief, right belief. It has to do with teachings and beliefs based on the established truths of the faith, truths revealed to us in God's word. The truth that we adhere to is summarized well in the, our statement of faith, our statement of faith that we hold dear. If you haven't read it or if you need to refamiliarize yourself with it, I highly encourage you to do so. It, I believe it is, a, it is a profound statement that does a good job of majoring on the majors and reminding us of the truths that we are united around, the essentials of the faith that we are united around, while leaving room then for differences in matters of conviction and of preference. There's a second piece, though, found in this text. The phrase, but do this with gentleness and respect. Actually, there's a link back to the previous passage, those character qualities that we are to exhibit as a community of faith. To do so with gentleness and respect, this has to do with our disposition, the way that we hold these truths. The reason orthodoxy has so many negative connotations is because of the improper ways often that people hold it. Perhaps they hold it narrowly, or maybe in a cold, dead sort of way that seems to have no bearing on people's lives. Some people hold to orthodoxy arrogantly, wanting to squash different viewpoints. Or even we might give an example of humble heterodoxy instead as scripture reveals we are called to humble orthodoxy that is holding firmly to the truth while gently and lovingly proclaiming it may we be a community that is so gripped by the truth and captivated by it that not only do we shout it with joy but that we would gently and lovingly share it with others let us stand under god's word yes but also humble ourselves and allow God's word to have authority in our lives, transforming us from the inside out. As we saw in our series on Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verses 14 to 15, contains kind of a parallel thought here when it says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Speaking the truth in love is another way of saying humble orthodoxy. We are anchored in God's truth, and this is what holds us firm in rough seas, which, what keeps us from being tossed to and fro and what guards us from drifting and losing our way and we are centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what is our ultimate anchor. And just as an anchor digs in deeper when the boat gets pulled, so we must dig more deeply into the gospel of Jesus Christ when the wind and the waves pull us. As with many things that are held in tension, there is a danger in tipping more in one direction or the other. I think I've used this analogy before, but think about horseback riding, for instance. Picture one stirrup as humble and the other stirrup as orthodoxy. And we can so easily fall off on one side or the other. Those who are stronger stronger in humility but struggle in orthodoxy might be tempted to water down the word or wiggle out of opportunities to speak the truth in love. Those that might be stronger in orthodoxy but struggle with humility might be more interested in winning the argument while showing little concern or care for the whole person. Instead, we need to stay in the saddle, church. Stay in the saddle. And maintain both humility and orthodoxy. I say this, but how many of us have actually ridden a horse before? Show of hands. Oh, good. A few more than I thought. (laughs) That's good. That's good. John Stott puts it this way. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. Church, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of both grace and truth. He is not 50% grace and 50% truth. No, he is 100% grace and 100% truth. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is at the cross that we see the ultimate expression of grace and truth. Christ willingly gave himself on the cross because he could not simply ignore our sin. Our sin is an affront to his sheer holiness. But it was his grace that caused him to give what truth demanded, and that is the perfect sacrifice for sin. So how do we guard and cultivate humble orthodoxy? A couple thoughts on this. I believe it involves not only growing in our knowledge of the word so that we can more easily spot counterfeits, but also not being what we might say as slackers or suckers who are easily duped by false gospels, by conspiracy theories, by other things that would come our way, and that we'd be ready to share the truth in a winsome way that allows the only offense to take place to be the offense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not our demeanor, not our, the way that we carry ourselves. It means listening to the whole person, empathizing and remembering that you are representing God's truth, not mere human opinion, and letting the Holy Spirit do His work the work of convicting that only he can do. It also means, I think this is worth pointing out, being willing to share the hope that you have. Do you notice that in the text? The hope that is in you, as another translation puts it. This is a hope that is deeply personal. That we be willing to share this hope that has forever changed our own lives. I think people want to hear that sort of thing the hope that has changed us, that has transformed us from the inside out. A couple other thoughts on this. Peter goes on in verse, or chapter 4 to speak of the gifts that every believer has been given. I believe the gifts of speaking and of serving, the variety of those gifts can be used to help cultivate humble orthodoxy as well. I think the ethos communities that we have here at, at EBF are a tremendous way for us to do this as well not only in studying God's word for ourselves, but also encouraging one another and helping guard one another when we see others adrift. And at the beginning of chapter 5, Peter emphasizes then the role of elders in shepherding and in guarding the flock that has been entrusted to our care. Pray for us as well as leaders that we would watch over, equip, teach, guard, and pray for the flock, the flock that God has entrusted to our care. Well, Peter goes on to say in verse 16, keeping a clear conscience. And I think that if we are going to speak the truth in love, we need to have a clear conscience and be people of integrity before God, standing up for what is right, even in the face of hostility. I think the reason that he gives here is that we can't faithfully explain the gospel that is in us if we are living in a way that completely contradicts that hope. Keeping a clear conscience, the purpose Verse 16, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. When we think of being ashamed, we think of the emotional feeling of embarrassment or guilt, but the Old Testament speaks of shame in the sense of social status, often referring to utter defeat in battle. Scripture says that those who follow God in the end will not be put to shame, but their opponents will be. And if we are to keep a clear conscience, then accusations against us may prove to be groundless, and our accusers will be put to shame. Here's the fourth response. Rest, verse 17, rest in God's perfect will. Verse 17 says, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I think what Peter mainly has in view here is suffering for doing something that is honoring to God. He interjects the key phrase in this verse, if it is God's will. And the point of this is not that God wills suffering, but he wills doing what is right even in the face of suffering. And Peter's encouragement is that we can rest knowing that suffering is still under God's sovereign control. He reminds us that even if we face suffering, it is only for A little while chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 and that afterwards God will restore and strengthen us chapter 5 verse 10 rest in God's perfect will well starting in verse 18 what Peter does is he turns back to the ultimate example of suffering that he has already introduced in chapter 2 verses 21 and following that ultimate example is suffering for doing what is right is Jesus Christ himself. And in these verses, we see three phases of Christ's upward journey to victory, each with a corresponding statement of belief. Three phases. I will say, though, that in the middle of these these three phases are some of the most difficult to understand verses in all of the New Testament. Perhaps you got a sense of that, even as you heard Ashley read those words. Martin Luther once said of this text, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So let me try to explain it. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, No, I I share that because with that in mind, just a couple of reminders. One is that our reach will be limited. I don't think we're going to solve centuries of debate this is not a time for a history of interpretation, but a, a, a preaching, a proclamation of God's word, and that we should still major on the majors and focus on what is being said, particularly about Jesus. In these words, there is room for there is room for debate, though I I, I believe on these in these verses. So we'll see that as we get to it. But first, the first phase of suf- the first phase that we see of Christ's upward journey to victory is that of suffering. In verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. Peter can think of no higher example of suffering for doing what is right than in Jesus Christ himself. And as I mentioned in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, Peter highlights different aspects of Christ's suffering. He highlights aspects of Christ's suffering leading up to his death the mocking, the the beating, all that he endured. Here he picks up the narrative once more and shifts the emphasis from the cross then to the resurrection of Jesus and to his exaltation as well. But verse 18 here is one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture on the atonement. Atonement has to do with God graciously working what God did to graciously work to deal with the primary problem of sin. And remember, sin has broken the relationship between us and God and caused us to be separated from him. But God provided a way for our relationship with with him to be restored once more with the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And in this verse, tightly woven in it, is uh, more facets, if you will, of the atonement. Christ suffered once for sins. He only died once. His death was unique and definitive. Christ suffered once for sins. Christ was completely righteous, while we are the unrighteous. The reason Jesus only had to die once was because he was the perfect, sinless sacrifice. We, on the other hand, are, in the description here, we are the unrighteous. I have yet to meet anyone who can tell me with a straight face that they have never done anything wrong in their life. Christ was completely righteous. Christ suffered that he might bring us to God. This was the purpose of Christ's substitutionary death. He died to deal decisively with this separation from God and to radically reunite us with the Father. And Christ was put to death in the body, or in the flesh. This basically summarizes the entire verse, but it emphasizes Christ's physical body being put to death. Christ suffered once. He was completely righteous. He suffered to bring us to God, and he, he was put to death in the flesh. But, church, the story doesn't end there. The second phase of his upward journey to victory is that, is that of Resurrection. Look at the rest of verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Made alive in the Spirit. This refers specifically to Christ's miraculous resurrection and Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. In the New Testament, the realm of the Spirit encompasses everything that is lasting, everything that is eternal, Starting in verse 19, though, is where things, to get, things start to get a little tricky here. And I have to admit, as I said, there are different, different views on this. But the goal is to seek, I think, an explanation that fits the overall context of Peter's letter and is true to Orthodox Christian beliefs. Verse 19, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. I believe the ESV maybe more accurately captures the original text in the beginning of verse 19 by saying, in which he went, in referring to the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. In which refers back to this, as I mentioned, the spiritual realm and forms, I think, the springboard for the illustration that Peter gives here. Christ was made alive in the spiritual realm, and he did something else in the spiritual realm. That is, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This verse raises at least three tough questions, probably more. But who are the spirits in prison? When did Christ preach? And what did Christ preach? And there have been all kinds of answers given to those questions. These verses have even been used to suggest that Christ descended into hell between his death and resurrection. But I think there is very little scriptural support for this. And this phrase is not found actually in the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed. But the view that I hold is basically this, that Christ was preaching to hostile unbelievers through Noah, when the ark was being built. And like I said I could be wrong, but I believe this view does the best job of fitting the context of Peter's argument and is supported by other parts of his writings. It's it, I think it's seen it's been around since Augustine and supported by like John Feinberg for instance at uh, at Trinity. A couple of things, a couple of reasons why I hold this. One is that 1 Peter 1:11 talks about the spirit of Christ being active in the Old Testament prophets. And this supports Peter's thinking that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through Noah as well. In fact, 2 Peter 2.15 refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. This noun for preacher comes from the same root as the word for made proclamation here in our passage. Christ preached through Noah in the days leading up to the flood. And the people he preached to were hostile unbelievers on earth at the time of Noah. But they were spirits in prison because they are now in prison in hell. The NASB clarifies this by saying, to the prisoners now in prison. You know, we do this by saying, we might say something like, President Biden was born in 1942. But we understand that he wasn't president when he was born. And yet, so Christ preached the spirits in prison would mean something like, Christ preached to people on earth who are now spirits in prison. So through Noah, Christ preached that the people should repent and come to God for salvation. This was the right message to preach while God was patiently waiting. And I think ultimately this interpretation fits very well into the larger context of 1 Peter 3 and what his readers were going through. But if nothing else, I think this is an encouragement to us to be bold in our witness like Noah was, to be confident that God will save us even though we might be few in number. And to be mindful that final judgment is coming, and final victory belongs to the Lord. The end of verse 20, Peter mentions that in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. This leads him to transition to the theme of baptism. Verse 21, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think once more about Noah and his family. They were brought safely through the waters of judgment, and God preserved them in the ark. And in a similar way, baptism is a picture of passing through the waters of judgment. We identify Christ's death going under the water and resurrection and coming out of the water and are kept unharmed. Just as Noah fled into the ark, so we should flee to Christ and escape judgment. But what should we make of the phrase, baptism, that now saves you? Some people might point to this passage to say that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, but is that what Peter is saying here? I think he actually clarifies what he's saying with the phrase, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It is not the outward physical act of washing dirt from the body that saves us. It is the inward spiritual reality between you and God, which is symbolized by baptism. One commentator paraphrases it like this. Baptism now saves you not the outward physical ceremony of baptism, but the inward reality which baptism represents. So Peter is actually guarding against seeing baptism as some sort of magical ceremony that has saving power in itself. No. When God gives us a clear conscience, we have assurance that every sin has been forgiven and that we stand in right relationship with God. And this pledge of a clear conscience isn't what provides the basis for salvation. No. Salvation is ultimately earned for us through Christ's death and resurrection. And Peter makes this clear with the phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection is what demonstrated his victory over sin and death, and it is, in, it is trusting in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that ultimately matters. Rising out of the waters of baptism, pictures being raised with Christ, and we are brought safely through the waters of judgment, through Christ's resurrection, and are then given a clear conscience by God. Church, trust in Christ alone to bring you through the waters of judgment back to God. Identify with Christ by being baptized in obedience, if you haven't been, as an outward, represent, an outward representation of the inner transformation that has already taken place. I can't help but think of the four that were baptized just this past week. And what a powerful reminder to us and an example of the inner transformation that God has brought about in the lives of those that took that next step of obedience. Well, with the phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it brings Peter back to these three phrases of of this upward journey to victory. And the final phrase, or phase, I keep saying phrase, final phase is exaltation. Exaltation, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Following his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the Father's right hand. To be at the right hand of the king meant that one acted with the king's authority and the king's power. Today today we might use the phrase right-hand man. Uh, Newsflash, Hamilton borrowed this phrase from Scripture, (laughs) at the right hand of the Father. This image, though, helps us understand that Christ has authority over all things, that his work of redemption is complete in that he sat down, and he alone is worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory that is due his name. Verse 22 ends with angels' authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus subjected himself to suffering and death at the hands of human rulers Now all heavenly and earthly beings, good and evil, are subject to him. This is the pinnacle of Christ's upward journey to victory. This is the pinnacle with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Putting it all together, church, I believe there are three lessons to be drawn, at least three, but three that can be drawn from this text. When suffering for doing what is right, remember that you are blessed. Revere Christ as Lord. Be ready to share the truth in love and rest in his sovereign will. Through Christ's suffering, resurrection, and exaltation, he has gained victory over sin and death and guaranteed victory for those who believe in him. And because Jesus was put to death in the body, made alive in the spirit, and has gone into heaven, we can be brought through the waters of judgment ourselves and reunited with our Father. Jesus was put to death in the body, made alive in the Spirit, and has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, let us spend some time refamiliarizing ourselves with these beliefs that we hold dear, even as we hear these words. And actually, in some versions of Scripture, these words here in verses 18 and following are kind of, or 18 and 19 are kind of set off to the side, kind of typeset differently to remind us of almost their creedal-like emphasis. And so, church can think of no better way for us to to be reminded of the truths that we hold dear by reciting the Apostles' Creed together. Would you stand with me? Let us recite the Apostles' Creed. The words will be on screen. They're also in the Church Center app. But let's confess together these words. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.